Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. That was easy this time. Technology is working. I'm very happy. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage podcast. This is Bruce Wainer. Well, I should probably say my name first because I'm clearly not Bruce. I'm Rachel Marshall and my co-host Bruce Wainer is with me as well today. And we're continuing on in this series that we've been starting that is on the book Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash, the founder and father of Infinite Banking himself. So we are now in the fifth, I believe, um, episode of this series. We have four episodes before where we've been unpacking the book kind of um, chapter by chapter. And today we're really talking about all capital has a cost. We're really talking about the hidden costs of capital that can make or break your financial future. And we're going to talk about having how understanding the cost of capital and making sure you're not just paying the cost of capital, but you're also earning interest is the benefit and the value of using infinite banking. So we're going to talk today about how to become your own banker. Bruce, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Nelson, this is kind of the premise of becoming your own banker. You know, um, Nelson really felt that people don't understand this concept. I think business owners understand the concept a little better, but I meet business owners a lot of times that you know, they actually will either just pay cash for something or they will finance something without a second thought. What's interesting on, now this is a disclosure, we're not endorsing this, but on our on our security side, our broker side at E3 Wealth, we uh, represent a lot of real estate investment trust. And what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of major corporations, when they f- found out about uh, economic value add, that they stopped buying their own properties for two reasons. If they, bu- if they bought it with cash, that cash, they thought, oh, I'm just going to buy it with cash and that way I won't have a borrowing cost. But they forgot about the fact that there was an opportunity cost loss. You, you couldn't use that money to earn money with it um, Mm -hmm. later on. And if they did a borrowing situation, then they had the cost of borrowing. So what what major corporations do now is they actually lease the buildings. And a lot of people don't know that. Like AT&T, if they had a customer service building, they just lease it. If Amazon uh, needs a a warehouse, they they don't build the warehouse themselves. They have somebody else build it, and then they lease the building. Hmm. And then the way they, the other third party gets the money is most of the time they will have a capital raise with investors, and then the investors will participate on the the lease side of it. You know, they'll they'll there'll be profits from getting lease leases from the lease amount from the corporation. So that this chapter is going to talk about the economic value of money and how we think about this. So the the main thing that Nelson always says, you're either paying interest or you're giving up interest. Mm-hmm. Rachel, people didn't really worry about that too much in the last 10, 12 years because the Federal Reserve had pushed down interest rates so far that people were like, well, I may as well pay cash for it because I can't make anything in the bank anyway. Well, now that interest rates are coming up, I believe people will start paying attention to the fact that, you know, when they use their cash, what are they getting for that use of that cash? Because they could leave it in the bank and maybe get 3% uh, in that situation. I love how he starts this chapter and just kind of you're unpacking these two big concepts that are at the forefront. One is you're always paying interest. The other is called economic value added. They kind of go hand in hand. I mean, they're very related concepts. And so I think what's really valuable to start with is Nelson said it the best. And I've heard this from so many different angles, but that you're always paying interest. And what that means is we can clearly see 
if you go get a loan, there is an interest cost attached to that loan. You're not just repaying the principal on a mortgage or a car loan or a credit card or a business loan or a any loan you ever get, you are always also paying interest. So that interest portion can always make people, you know, stand back and take a pause and say, I don't want to be paying interest, right? We don't want to have that outflow that if something actually costs us $10,000, we don't want to pay 10500 We just want to pay 10000 So what that causes people to do then is to say, well, the opposite of paying interest is to pay cash. Because when I pay cash, I pay no interest. But Nelson is saying, wait a minute, that's not true because you're always paying interest. You're either paying interest, which is very obvious as we saw on the financing side, not very obvious when you're looking at if I pay cash, I give up the ability to earn something. And Bruce, as you were saying, I mean, yes, it's hard to see the value of that when you say, well, I'm earning what 0.04% in a bank account. So not really giving up that much. Why not just pay that cash? However, what could you have done with that cash instead? That's your opportunity cost. Where could you have put it to work instead of using that cash? So if if you paid $10,000 of cash directly to something rather than um, putting it in an investment, what could you have earned if you had invested it, if you'd used it differently in your business? And often, I mean, Bruce, you're you're talking with business owners saying, what could you earn if you had this infusion of capital in your business? Well, sometimes that's 20% that you could earn because you have you you have a known system that's working well in your business. That would be then the opportunity cost of using your cash because you're not using it in that manner, you're using it for something else. Mm. So that idea alone makes you realize there's always a cost because I'm giving up the ability to earn interest or I'm paying interest. Then um, this concept of economic value added, what's interesting about that, Bruce, is that that started in the business or corporate sector, right? That was something that wasn't necessarily um, on the consumer side. That was something that businesses began looking at, but they realized that if I use my capital reserves, I'm having to add a finance cost to that because it's not free to use my own money. And businesses that use that economic value added or EVA premise ended up being more financially successful because they recognized that using their cash was not free. Exactly. So using equity or owner's equity or capital, that has a cost. So the lesson to learn from all of this is um, if you're following along in the book, um, Bruce, what is the actual page number? 21, you said? 21, yes. 21. Um, I have a different version that has different page numbers. So um, same text though. So the title is creating your own banking system through dividend paying life insurance. So you're using these principles of banking that we've been unpacking to now say, how do you create your own banking system using dividend paying life insurance? And he starts from this idea that you can not just pay interest but how do you recover as much as possible? How do you minimize the cost of capital by also earning at the same time? And I think that's the basic premise that he then shows you how to do with whole life insurance. Yeah, this is a really about, you have to understand that you're, you are actually starting your own business. I think we mentioned this before, you know, this infinite banking isn't something you just try. You know, and then you just try for a year and you're like, oh, okay, well, it didn't work the way I thought it worked. Well, it does work the way you, you think it, it works. If you if you think about it as building your own business, you just don't open your doors the very first day and all of a sudden people just come into your, your place of business and you're, you're profitable right away because you had all this cost of startup. It's the same way with the infinite banking concept. If you think of your your dividend paying whole life insurance as being a startup bank. Now it isn't a bank, but if you think of it like that as a strategy, then you're going to have startup costs. And Nelson talks a little bit about the startup costs. And what are those startup costs? Well, the actuaries have to actually design the actual product. In other businesses, you might have an engineer that has to design something like a car or a piece of machinery that produces something. 
the engineers in life insurance are actually actuaries. And so they determine um, how long people with certain situations are going to actually um, live certain health situations. And they, they, they take a huge uh, amount of people, like a, like a 10, like million, 10 million, 10 million yeah. people. Yes. So they're pretty accurate when they do this and they know at what age and if they have diabetes, height to weight ratios, so on support. So these actuaries have to take in a lot of information. And so then they design, they tell people how long they're, these people are probably going to live. So then they can take it to another person that creates a rate sheet. And a rate sheet then will actually talk about how much the company actually has to a charge for that at, at particular ages to actually for the life insurance company to be profitable. And when you're a dividend paying company, the policyholders own the company. So you want it to be profitable mm -hmm. because, because then you reap the benefits of not only the investments that the insurance company makes, but how they keep expenses down. How do they keep the biggest expense down? That's the mortality of a person. If too many people die prematurely because the actuaries didn't do a good job, then they will actually not be as profitable. So the actuaries are very, very important. And then you have underwriters. Actually, Bruce, that actually can I, I want to comment about what you just said about the actuaries. Okay. So pause before we get to the underwriter. What's interesting about the actuaries is that they still don't have a crystal ball, right? They can't make exact proclamations of what will happen, but they can get as close as possible through statistical analysis. And so we're going to get later on um, in this chapter, we're going to come back to that idea. So I don't want to, um, you know, spoil, spill the beans or give the spoiler before we get there. But remember that they're still making as accurate of assumptions as they can, but sometimes they're slightly wrong. The ultimate goal is to be able to say, how can we manage this company? How can we collect premiums? What do we need to charge for these policies in order to be able to pay the expenses and still be profitable? They're, they're making all these projections so that they can make claim or pay claims and still be profitable. Bruce, let's come back to the underwriting. I just wanted to point that out. Well, yeah. And just to piggyback on that, um, they don't know which person of those 10 million is going to die, but they know how many are going to die. And we talk about, I talk about that with clients all the time, you know, that might get a slightly lower rating or something and people have to face their mortality. And I say, you know, don't worry about it. They don't know the, if you're going to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. I recently had somebody that had a, um, a slightly, um, uh, what they a valve in their heart that was slightly leaking and it needed to be monitored for the rest of their life. And so they got, they got rated down one step and they were like, Hey, I eat proper properly. I, I exercise, I go to the doctor and I, and I'm like, you don't understand. It's nothing against you, but they know people, they can't follow you the rest of your mm -hmm. life. So all they can, they only get one shot because as soon as they give you the rating, they can't, and you accept that they can't change it. They can't 10 years from now, all of a sudden you've gained 20 pounds and you stopped exercising, you stopped going to the doctor. They can't change it. So it's nothing against you personally. They're just using the, the law of large numbers in that situation. So the, the other, the other thing that they're doing right there is also they're saying, well, maybe we have these 400 guys all at this particular age with the same health condition they don't know if the ones with the the lower um death benefits are going to die or the ones with the higher death benefits so i mean there's a lot of factors that are um in in this and Bruce, i think that's very eye-opening to realize that they can't follow you through your life they can make an assumption that if you're healthy now and you're doing things that maintain your health now, you're probably going to be the kind of person who continues to maintain your health and doesn't fall off the wagon and get really stupid with your choices. But at the same time, I mean, we all change. <laughs> and Nelson actually, Nelson actually talks about that in this champ chapter that <clears throat> once you are given the policy and you accept it, 
through your payments, it now becomes a unilateral contract, which means they can do nothing to take it away. You can stop it. You can modify it according to contract, but they cannot do anything to take it away or modify it per contract. So you're in total control of your life from then on. Um, and, and so that's really important. Yeah, it's called a unilateral contract. And I, and you know, I'm always amazed on review sessions year after year that we do with our clients. I bring up some of these characteristics and people don't remember them. They go, Oh, I didn't know I could do that. Or um, I'm I'm really afraid about this. And I'll say, well, you shouldn't be afraid about it because you have the choice to change it or not if you want to. Mm-hmm. Or the contract. There's always some things you cannot do. You know, you can't like all of a sudden decide, I want to only change and lower my death benefit by one half and change the base premium. You know, that's, you can change it, but you can't just do it by one half. You're going to have to change it, uh, do what they call a reduce paid up and, and just totally reduce it and pay it up. Uh, for the rest of the contract. So um, those are the little things that also brought up, brought out in this chapter. I'm going to point something out about the unilateral contract. What's interesting about that is I think when we look at contracts and I haven't looked it up again, I remember looking at a, um, it was a business law course that was very difficult. I went through when I was working on my degree many years ago. Um, we talked about contracts and contract law. And the interesting part about the unilateral contract here is they are required to uphold their end of the agreement, which is to pay the death benefit, but also to continue to increase the cash value based on interest, guaranteed interest, and then also to pay dividends, which are not guaranteed. So I don't even know if that's considered part of the contract portion. But what is interesting is it's dependent on you following through with your end of the deal. So, and your end of the deal is I'm going to pay my premiums and if I stop upholding my end of the deal, they have no obligation to follow through. So that means I can't just say, look, look, guys, we had a contract. I'm going to stop my premium payments. I'm going to do whatever I want. You still have to pay the death benefit. It doesn't work that way. You do have obligation to fulfill in order for them to be able to follow through. Yeah. And I just, I know we're not talking about this today, but this is a great time to mention this. So whole life insurance contracts, they do give you a grace period. And if you lose, if you miss the grace period, and pay during the grace period, nothing nothing changes in the contract. With other types of permanent insurance like universal life, index universal life, variable universal life, if you're late with a payment, they can actually by contract take away other features in that contract. And a lot of people do not understand that with universal life, uh, especially index universal life. They will they will have some things like we can increase the fee or we can uh, charge you an additional fee or we can actually take away a rider if you if you are late, just late with a payment. Wow. So, um, you really have to understand the contract um, and how it's worked. It really upsets me all the time. You know, and I've talked about this in other videos when my wife and I lost our home everybody automatically is presumed that our insurance company was going to take advantage of us. Oh, they're not going to pay. They're not going to do this. And I know how contracts work. It never bothered me whatsoever because I'm like, it's in the contract. Okay. It's not, they're not going to not pay. It's in the contract. Nelson used to, people used to say all the time, well, what if Congress decides not to make growth of a, of a of a specially designed life insurance contract tax free, and they changed that death benefits are no longer tax free. And Nelson said, "Yeah, they could, but they're not going to be able to go back and retroact any contract that's already in place. Will get those characteristics. Why? Because contract law is the fabric of any modern society. If you just say on a whim." I'm changing all the contracts that have ever been put in place prior to this date. Well, then you really have no guarantees going forward. Mm-hmm. Going forward, that happens all the time. You, you change. That's why you have lawyers. You change the contracts of products going forward, but they cannot touch the ones that have already been established. And there's been precedent in the life insurance industry for this. 
it's nice to be able to have something to rely on. And when you make an agreement today to know that that's going to be an upheld agreement, even if something changes in the law in the future for those types of agreements going forward. Um, let's. I really want to point out something that I thought stood out really boldly in this chapter that is probably the most crucial element of understanding how to use a whole life policy. And it's this. He says, he Nelson starts out by saying, if you get two cars from the dealership and both of them have been manufactured exactly identical, they have the exact same motor, they have the exact same body, they have the exact same um, features to the T. They, they are identical cars. They're going to each be sold to an owner and that owner is going to maintain the car, drive the car. One owner is probably going to make sure they religiously and diligently change the oil exactly when it's supposed to. They're going to drive. They're not going to be squealing the tires. They're not going to be pumping the brakes all the time. They're going to be driving a little probably um, more conservatively. And maybe they are driving more in the country. Then you have another person who's driving mostly in the city. There's uh, in New York City, you have to you have to um, hit your brakes or you're going to have an accident. Maybe they aren't as diligent with the oil changes. What he says is that no two cars will perform identically. Even though they were manufactured identically, it's not the manufacturer that determines the performance of the car. It's the driver. It's the owner of the car. It's the, the person who runs and maintains the car. I mean, this is the reason why if you buy a car from a a rental company, a car that's been rented out many, many times over several years. People who rent cars don't necessarily treat them the same way as if they owned the car. And it's possible that they've had more wear and tear on them than you would have had if you just bought from somebody who had the car and were one owner. So the the point that he makes, the, the parallel over into the life insurance world is that the contract is extremely valuable, but it's not as contingent on the contract itself. It's how you drive the policy. So it's how you use the policy all along the way that determines how it's going to ultimately end up. So this would mean the difference of somebody who says, oh, I'm going to miss my premium payment or I'm going to you know, reduce, I'm not going to reduce pay up. The, I'm going to not pay my PUAs this year. I'm going to take this policy loan. I'm not going to repay it. Oh, it's accruing interest. Yeah, it's getting close to using up all my cash value, but I'll get back to it someday. You have another person over here who every single year makes their full payment, the full paid up addition, the full base policy. They take a loan. They, instead of just saying, I'll get back to repaying it, they have a schedule. They say, well, let's repay this loan in five years. I'm going to pay with interest in this five-year span, and maybe they even pay it off early. And then they have the capital available to be able to reuse again. Those two policies are not going to end up exactly the same. The performance of them in the long run is not going to end up the same. And before you shoot me down and say, well, they guaranteed, the life insurance company guaranteed, here's my cash value and here's what I'm going to end up at. Yes, if you pay the full premium. So your loans aren't going to impact as much of what your cash value, your total cash value ends up as, but you are going to have a difference in your in your policy if you're not paying full premiums or if you are. So you in this contract, here's the life insurance company, here's you. It's a unilateral contract, but the most important player, the key player is you and how you are managing and using your policy. So um, Bruce, let's kind of look at what that wise ownership means and then kind of where the company's responsibility is. Um, Specifically when it relates to investing capital and earning a return, the, the company's responsibility. Let's start there. Yeah, I just spent time with uh, two of the major carriers that we uh, represent, and we did a side-by-side comparison of six of the, because they actually have to report where they're investing their money. And I had, uh, we did a side-by-side comparison of where people are investing their money. When I say people, I'm sorry, the the mutual insurance companies. And I've said this dozens of times on the show. There's not that much difference between each mutual company that has good financial ratings. There just isn't. You're not going to get a lot better performance out of one company than another. You might for a short period of time, 
um, because there's ebb and flows, you know, back and forth. But the reason you're not going to get that because between 75 and 85% of every company's portfolio is simply going to contain government and corporate bonds. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a fact. Why? Because the regulators want to see some guarantees for future payouts. And so those are just purchased on the open market. So it's not like you're going to have a backroom deal that all of a sudden one company is going to say, hey, will you give us a better rate than another company? Then about another 10 to 15%, depending on the company, actually invest in mortgage debt. So um, interest rates on mortgages, they'll, they'll pool those together. So once again, you're not going to, those are on the open market. You're not going to get a lot of difference in that situation. So you're, they're going to get a return on their portfolio. Right now, most of the companies are getting anywhere between a five and a six and a half percent return. Now that might seem like a big difference, but it's not when you consider, and this is a hard concept to get across in just a few minutes. But you also have to look at the duration of the bonds. So you may get a bigger return um, in a shorter period of time. But when you look out long for how long these bonds are invested, it's actually going to shift to later on. So there really isn't that much shifting in relationship to uh, that five to six and a half percent. Then they're also going to have a very small sliver, three percent maybe in traditional securities, and then they're going to have maybe 5% in other investments, they call it. And those other investments may be like derivatives, which are a very complicated option uh, situation where they're they're paying for option contracts and so on and so forth. So the returns are basically the same. Then it's about how are you controlling cost? And this is where insurance companies are superior to most other companies. They really watch the cost. And the reason they do that is because they have long-term commitments where costs by a corporation, when times are good and money's flowing in, they don't worry about cost. It's funny, when times get bad, all of a sudden they start worrying about cost. So they start slashing their workforce. They start slashing services, so on and so forth. And that's why stock prices tend to go up and down, up and down. Why is that? Because they have to report every 90 days. Mm -hmm. Every 90 days, they have to make a financial report to the board of directors. It gets out there publicly and their stock price moves because of that. What's also interesting in that is many of the upper CEOs and the people that are the corporate execs, compensations are tied to the stock price. So they will do anything to actually keep that stock price up for a short period of time so they can build up their portfolio compensation and then leave the company. They don't, they're not looking long-term. Now, they do have some, some be, uh, vesting periods when they, when they can actually sell their stock. They can't sell it all at one time, so on and so forth. Where life insurance companies actually have to look at their long-term promises. Mm-hmm. So they have to take a much more conservative. That's why you're not going to see these ups and downs, and they can actually have a guaranteed section. So it's a very interesting thing when you're talking about looking at the cost. Um, let's bring up let's the, the last cost that a lot of people think is a major cost for a insurance company is the commissions that are paid insurance agents and agencies, and. <clears throat> As as dividends were being driven down in the last 12 years because the cost of bonds were driven down, a lot of I attended several insurance conferences where insurance agents would actually raise their hand and tell the tell the insurance company, hey, we'd be willing to lower our commissions, our payments, if so that we can raise dividends. And without fail, the executives at the company would say, we appreciate that, but that cost is minuscule compared to all the other costs, such as mortality, the home office costs, you know, so on and so forth. So it's not really going to move, move the, uh, the, the uh, 
profitability that much. So they said, we're not going to change that. I, I, I point that out because a lot of people claim, you know, the only reason certain insurance agents build a policy a certain way is only for the commissions. And the commissions really do not affect the policy that that much. It does affect some of the, pro, the some of the availability early on in the policy, but it also will affect how much future dividends you get if interest rates continue to stay where they are or continue to go up. So it's re- profitability is really looked at by the insurance companies by two things, holding costs down, which they do better than most corporations, and uh, working on minimizing the, the ups and downs of their investments. What's really interesting about the insurance company's perspective, if we put our lens on to look through their, their glasses for a minute, they are receiving premium income. They have made these assessments to say, how much do I need to charge for these policies in order to stay profitable? They're managing their expenses. They're putting their capital to work in locations like stock, not, not stocks, but mostly bonds and um, and mortgages. They're staying conservative. They're looking long range and they're managing all of this internally at the company to say, how do we make the greatest profit? How do we pay dividends? How do we keep the policy owners continuing to grow these policies as well as possible? That's a lot of management that they're thinking about. Here's something very, very interesting that Nelson points out in the book. Every life insurance company has this contractual, well, I shouldn't say every, mutual, I don't know, Bruce, correct me if um, if I'm saying the wrong blanket statement. I don't know where you're going, so I so will. They have this piece in the contract that gives the policy owner the access to borrow against their cash value. Yeah. Everyone has to have that in the United States. Every state requires that. Okay. So every life insurance company. So yeah, there is- has, has cash valued life insurance. Some, some are just term policies, obviously, but everyone right. has valued life insurance. Okay. So everyone who has cash value life insurance has the contractual right and ability to borrow against their cash value, and then take that money and do something with it. They're going to have interest accrued. So we're now putting on the glasses of the insured, the policy owner. They have that contractual right and ability to do that. And here's what Nelson points out. He said the owner, the policy owner, that's you and me, we outrank every other potential borrower in access to money that must be lent. Meaning, if there is a pool of general fund that must be invested. Now I'm the life insurance company glasses again, and I'm looking at this pool of capital. How am I going to invest this? They're going to invest it, but all the borrowers or all the policy owners have access to borrow against that capital and put it to work. Now that means you can, I mean, you can borrow almost up to a full amount of your cash value, almost hundred percent. It's not always, it's like 93, 97%. They retain a portion to preserve just the uh, the feasibility and viability of the company but that means that as a policy owner you have absolute control over the investment function of the company so you have the ability to borrow against your capital put those dollars to work and then you would want to be a good banker and pay that back you have to pay back with interest but you'd want to pay back those loans as quickly as possible because you can be thinking i want to make sure that my loan that I'm putting this money to work in is performing in a way that's commensurate or comparable to where the insurance company would be investing this money. Because ultimately, if you're borrowing capital, what the insurance company doesn't want is everyone borrowing their capital, not repaying it. Well, that ties up the ability for them to have invested that capital somewhere else, right? Yeah, they don't They don't worry about that too much. They do worry about it. Don't get me wrong. They, they worry about it because they want to make sure they have enough for any kind of future loans. But you got you to remember, as people borrow, it also reduces their future liabilities because True. it lowers the death benefits. So we get this question all the time. Why would an insurance company 
allow you to borrow. First, it's contractual. The state regulators make them. The second reason is, is they're going to set it at a borrowing rate that is competitive out in the, the open market. So example, um, the, fix, the fixed companies right now are about 5.7%. And a mortgage you can get for 6.25%. You know, so it's they're they're setting it at that particular time. Yes, do they don't really mind if the bond rates, which are still lower, like a 10-year treasury is 3.75 at the time of this recording. So if what do you think they would rather do? They'd rather get a 10-year treasury that they have to hold for 10 years or maybe sell it at a loss or sell it a premium, but they don't, it's unknown, mm-hmm. or charge charge somebody. 5.75, or excuse me, 5.7% for a loan, and that goes into the profitability of the company. So obviously they they don't, it doesn't bother them. And then uh, owners of the contracts will actually benefit from some people borrowing money and paying the interest to the insurance company. So although they although they have to control loans a little bit, just like any bank or financial institution would have to, because they're looking out and they know the when policies are going to endow, every time you borrow, you're actually lowering your future death benefits by whatever you borrow. And of course, that means they don't have to pay out a future death benefit at the same amount. Now, as you pay the loan mm-hmm. back, what happens to your death benefit? It goes up con- commiserate with how much you pay back. Well, that's okay now. The life insurance company now has more of that capital back to be able to lend again. So it's it's a little counterintuitive for somebody. But if you really stop and think about the working parts it can be fairly simple if you stop and think about each working part. It's very interesting to stop and think about each working part. And I I like to think about the death benefit lowering in one of two ways. I mean, you could think I take a loan, they lower the death benefit. That's the experience that you're having. You could also think about, well, my death benefit is fixed. And what's going to happen is I take out a $100,000 loan. They're going to pay my full death benefit minus my $100,000 loan. So they're going to reduce it. Think of it. Think of it as a home equity line of credit. You have a house. You have a mortgage on it. Your house is still the same value, but mm-hmm. now you take another hundred thousand dollar home equity line of credit. When you sell the home, you don't get you don't get the value without paying off all the lines of credit. So they're still going to sell it for a million dollars, but now you got seven hundred thousand dollars of of a mortgage on it. So you're only going to receive three hundred thousand. So mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. The death benefit actuarially is still there. They're just saying you took another loan against this, so we're going to have to subtract that loan from the death benefit, which essentially means they've lowered the death benefit from the collateralized loan in that situation. Yes, because their net payout, their net liability is less and the family who is receiving the death benefits net experience of the check that they're actually going to receive is less as well. So I think coming back to the main point of this particular conversation is that all capital has a cost and you as a bar, you as a, not just a borrower, you can be a borrower as well, but you as a policy owner have the most responsibility in terms of how you're driving your policy, meaning pay your premiums, pay them in full as much as possible. When you do so, you have the ability to increase the performance of your policy. And then when you borrow, you want to repay at a rate. You have to pay at a certain interest rate, but you also want to repay at a speed that would be commensurate with what the insurance company would be earning had they invested those dollars. Mm-hmm. All right. We've got a lot going on on the the chat and the comments here. So Bruce, did we get information from Marco that helps us answer the question? Um, not, not yet. And, and I don't really think um, I would have to have so many follow-up questions. And Marco is in Italy. 
And I don't know some of the laws in Italy, you know, so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to dodge this question. It sounds like what he's proposing makes sense, but I think it's it's just best that I, from a fiduciary standpoint, we don't we don't comment on that. And then uh, Fritz is uh, asking about individuals outside of the U.S. And he's actually it's actually true. I don't know where Fritz is from, but he he says we don't have the PUA rider and. A lot of companies don't even, or a lot of countries don't even have cash value life insurance. Mm-hmm. And the ones that do, you cannot even purchase them uh, and change the design. You actually have to just purchase something like you would purchase off the shelf. And so Fritz was just pointing that out. He said he had a question, so we'll, we'll wait. Oh, here he is. Uh, using a loan to pump additional PUAs in a policy by paying a higher interest rate would be the one way to juice it up. Um, yeah, I still don't understand. I still don't know exactly how the contracts work where he is, but what he's saying is often what Nelson was talking about is if the insurance company is charging you, let's say 5% for the loan and it's your own bank, it's your own, um, it's your own contract. Why wouldn't you pay yourself maybe 7%? So that your PUAs are actually growing by two percent or five percent. So the five, uh, when I say uh, two additional percent, so five percent to the insurance company to pay for the interest, and then additional two or five, three, four, five percent that would actually supercharge your PUAs. Um, ever since seventy-seven oh two changed a couple years ago, they made it a little bit more difficult to design. The, that kind of flexibility. And so now what we try to do is design it so that you're anticipating what your highest PUA amount would be. And we try to build it all the way up to the MEC limit. And then maybe the next year you don't actually fully fund the PUAs, but you leave some room in there to borrow against and then fully fund your PUAs with extra payments. This Rachel, as I finish up this particular thing, the one thing I want people to realize is you're you are not totally paying yourself the interest back. Yes. Some people on social media makes it seem like that the interest is charged by the insurance company and you're paying the insurance company interest. If you're reading the book, Nelson actually says. Well, if you're paying the insurance company interest, why don't you pay your bank some additional interest? It's just a it's just a way that Nelson knew human nature. It's a way to actually fully fund your PUAs. Um, you're not really paying yourself interest, even though that that's what he called it. Mm-hmm. He's just saying to fully fund your PUAs, charge yourself some own your your own self some interest, and you'll benefit from it. I like that you note that. I think sometimes people get hung up on the actual words without the understanding of what Nelson meant. And I think that can cause some hangups. And yes, it's important to know you are paying interest to the life insurance company, which ultimately comes back around to you in a way that when you pay the insurance company anything, interest on a policy loan, premiums, anything that's paid to the life insurance company ultimately is factored in to the ultimate profitability that they have. Yeah, it's just if you read Nelson's book, it's it's not confusing. Exactly. If you to people on social media, it is confusing. Yes. <laughs> That's because they're only unfortunately there's two types of people in the world. There are people that are nice people, good people, but they're incompetent. They are taking a uh something that they don't truly understand. They're an insurance agent and they're telling you what they believe is the truth, but it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, there's other people in the world that are not that great of people and they're sensationalizing and they're they're actually twisting the truth just so that you say, oh, this is great. I'm going to go with you because that's the way it works. And then they find out that's not the way it works. How do I know this? I talk to people almost every week that are, could be potential clients and they were told this by somebody else. So that's well, there's more than those two types of people. There's those two types of people who spread misinformation, but there's also people who dig deep into the weeds, who talk like Bruce. I mean, you're talking on a regular basis with VPs at these insurance companies, 
We're talking with other insurance producers. We're gaining knowledge. We're going back to the source of Nelson Nash. We're really digging into saying, how do we really understand this? How do we use and apply it for ourselves? And how do we share this information with others? And so I would say there's a, a third type of person. You said there's only two types of people in the world. So I meant there's only two types of people that there's only two types of people that actually are misleading people. Yes. Some are doing it because of incompetence. Some are doing it because they know it's wrong, but they still do it. That's Absolutely. I I know that's what you meant. I um, just was uh, clarifying. I knew I, I know I didn't clarify it very well. That's all right. So we're going to wrap here today for this episode. So we've covered a couple pages in Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Um, thank you for the comments. I think there's um, Jeremiah as well. Th- thanks, family. This is golden, much needed, not only for me, but my community. He came back later and said, thanks for dropping this information for brothers and sisters in low-income communities so that we can all be our own banks. I think what's powerful about what Nelson Nash shared is that many people presume life insurance and specifically whole life insurance was only for ultra wealthy. And it's not. It's really something that can, the knowledge and the tools for how to create your own banking system can be used at any income level. And now maybe life insurance is not specifically the right next step, but for anybody, I would say the first steps for anyone are to make sure that you're paying yourself first, you're saving a portion of everything that you earn, you're building that muscle and and that discipline of savings because that is the foundation for everything else that comes with infinite banking. Bruce, anything you want to add to that? Well, Fritz is asking another question. Oh, go ahead. Question, do you look at the growth rate spread from policy year to policy year? Are those growth growth rate accurate based on the guaranteed line? So Fritz, this is um I'm not sure exactly what you mean by growth rate spread, so this is another problem out on the social media now. You know, a company might have a 6% dividend rate, and then they might have a borrowing rate of 5.5%. And there are people out there that say, see, you've made a half percent on that situation. Now, technically, if you just look at those two things, that's, that is correct. But in function, it's not correct because the 6% is a gross situation a gross rate situation, and then they take the fees. And the highest fee is obviously the cost of insurance. And so then the internal growth of the policy cash value may be um, negative in the early years. And then in the later years, it might be three and a half, four, five percent 5%. But then Nelson talks about in the book, he talks about it's not about the rate. It's about the volume. And so that's where the compounding comes in. So if you are putting, let's say, $30,000 a year into a policy, and after seven years, you have 210000 So now if you have a rate of growth, internal rate of growth of 3% on 210000 that's going to be about $6,300 of growth. You take a policy loan for $10,000 and you're paying 5, 5%, that's $500. So now the volume is different, right? You've, you've grown by 6,300, even though the rate was only three and a half percent. And the cost to access your capital was only $500. So now you offset those 63 profit up, 500 profit down, overall now, you've still made $5,800. He uses the example of somebody getting an, an injection. I believe it was morph. I believe it was morphine. You know, he- He might've been, I think so. Talks about it's not the rate, like how fast they put it in. That would be like the rate. It's the volume. How much of that are they putting in? Even if they put it in really, really slowly. So that's the difference between you got to really understand the difference between that arbitrage and people try to use that all the time arbitrage, but uh, the declared dividend is not what your policy cash value actually creates at. You got to be careful of that. So Fritz has got more information here. He said he's mentioning the ca- the guarantee values from year to year of the surrender value. Reason why I ask is because the only way to juice it up for me is by the loan feature. One thing I will point out, and again, we don't know where you're from, but if you only look at the guaranteed 
cash values that does not factor in any dividends ever paid into the policy. So while a dividend is not guaranteed on your not non-guaranteed side of the illustration, as soon as it is paid, it now becomes a portion of the guarantees. That's all I wanted to say there, Bruce. Is there anything you wanted to add based on his additional information? Well, I think it's I think it says it all, especially on the information that we have. Okay, um, Jeremiah, um, would it be a crazy idea if Bruce can come to our local high school and share this knowledge? Okay, so Jeremiah, go ahead and reach out to us with your questions. We have no idea where you're located. Um, at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. and um, that's a question we can. I've done that locally in St. Louis for several years in an entrepreneurial program that the local co-op districts actually do. And yes, I, I have shared this before. So I already have the lesson plan and he may not know that I was a former teacher. And so this is something that I enjoyed. I actually enjoy doing. So probably depends on your location. Um, then Marco, I think we're going to, mention this here. And then in America, they legalize marijuana almost everywhere. Instead of choosing the war on drugs, they do anti-prohibitionism, which is very good for people in finance economy by creating business and jobs. Yeah, this is, a, wanna... this is a good, he's making a good point. What he's, what he's basically trying to say is there, there are costs to everything. So, you know, whether, wherever you stand on the legal legalization of drugs, there's a cost to everything. There's an economic cost. There's a cost of people's lives being incarcerated. So there's a cost Mm -hmm. to actually keep those people incarcerated. And you also have limited people's capability to be um, contributing to society in an economic way. Um, But then you also have the cost of what happens if a person misuses the marijuana and does some nefarious things. That's a simple cost analysis, which any business would do. And I think the government governments in the United States have now decided that they've looked at it for over 50 years of this of marijuana being really cracked down on and realized that the economic value of cracking down on it does not weigh both socially by taking people out of society and financially to do that. Um, there, I grew up in the 70s when there was a war on drugs by Nancy Reagan and others, and they had their reasoning for it, and and that's where it came from. But now, as after we have almost fifty years of knowledge on this, I believe that's why they're changing. It's a it's a, both an economic and a social. You know, mm-hmm. are we treating these people for really minor offenses properly? And the more incarceration you have, the less economic value those people bring to society because they're all they're, they're just locked up. And they're mm-hmm. not bringing any economic value to society. Ah, really good points. Okay. So um, Tammy earlier had said, I appreciate your videos. Very informative. So thank you all for being with us. Thank you for your comments. Um, we forgot to ask a question at the beginning of the show. So I'll ask one now. Um, but if you have questions about infinite banking, please go ahead and pop those into the comment section of wherever you're watching this video. If you're listening on the podcast later, when this comes out live, on the podcast and the blog, you can put your questions into an email and send those over to hello at themoneyadvantage.com. If you specifically have questions about Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, we'd love to hear those as we're getting ready to continue on this series through the book and unpacking what this means and what it means for you in using infinite banking. And if you have questions specifically on the idea of why would I not just pay cash? Why? How are you always paying interest? Um, I think interest is good. I think I I want to finance. I want to pay cash. We would love to hear your your comments on that as well. So Bruce, um, I'm ready to wrap up. Is there anything that you wanted to say before we close? I'd just like to say the one thing that I've uh, I, that is happening more and more with people inquiring with the money advantage to talk to us. Um, they're saying things like, you know, I don't understand. Uh, I'm hearing out on the internet, social media about certain things. And some of them are very, very wild. They do compliment you, Rachel, um, about your your um, authenticity. And that's why they came to us is because we are just trying to, you know, tell it the way it is. Uh, they like the fact that, you know, I knew Nelson personally. And what is, bo- but what is really bothersome is the amount of people that are commenting that Nelson 
did a good job of starting this, but he was really out of touch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was, re- it, it's like they want their cake and eat it too. They, you know, Nelson was doing this for 60 years, but yet they say he really didn't know a lot. And we figured it out at age 28 or at age 32. And I, I'm not a, a young person basher. Obviously you're young and I don't, I, I enjoy being around That's you. That's arguable. <laughs> And, uh, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of misinformation out there and they, they can twist it any way they want. But if you actually want to come back to the source, the source is the person who in the last 22 years of his life actually gave us the guideline. That guideline is his book and actually the, the, his warehouse of wealth is maybe even better if you mm-hmm. ever look up that one. And, um, Nelson worked his last part of his life, the last 25% of his life to get this message out. And it's not about a des- necessarily a design or an insurance company. It's about having good money habits, taking the control of the, the function, the you and me function of a bank back into your life. And so when you're evaluating the this um, concept, you need to look inside first and say to yourself, am I going to follow the concept? If you're not, don't even try it. Mm-hmm. Not a magic bullet. And if you are, then you have to really look and see, are the people you're working with asking your goals and, and all your financial pictures, everything about your financial picture? Because I'm amazed how many people just get on a four minute telephone call and they just, people just send out an illustration without, with, without even knowing if the person can pay it, if it makes sense for them or so on and so forth. So we're getting that more and more. And the final thing I like to say today is I, I, I don't know exactly when this is going to be released, but I leave Tuesday for the Nelson Nash Institute annual think tank where we'll, we will be um, exchanging ideas um, throughout the certified practitioners to actually make the explanation better and talk about the new uh, rules and regulations and the new economy that we're experiencing rising interest rate environment. So much good packed in there in those last few minutes, Bruce. Um, Thank you for sharing all of that. And um, if you have questions about the Nelson Nash think tank, you can also email us at hello at the money advantage. Tech 1200. Rachel, how's your book coming along? Great episode. Um, I will say we are completing the copy edit round. I'm about to go into formatting, which is all the layout of the book. And so we're in the final stretch. It has definitely been taking longer because for your information, um, we have been developing a course that will go along with this book on creating your own legacy that lasts for multiple generations. And we're really excited to be able to release all of it to you at the same time. Hopefully, um, I don't know if the podcast knows yet. We're pregnant. We're expecting uh, baby number three in our Marshall house here, and we're due in July. So hopefully before the baby comes, we have some big deadlines. So thank you so much for being with us on the show today. And next time we're going to be unpacking the power of dividends as we continue on through the same chapter. And in the meantime, if you have questions or would like to reach out to our company to talk with an advisor and get your questions answered about infinite banking so you can get started using it for yourself, you can go to themoneyadvantage.com. There's a button right on the front of the page that says um, get on our calendar or calendar or book an appointment or something like that. And so you can just click that button right there and that takes you to our booking page and you can find a spot a spot. Uh, that works for you in your schedule. So thank you so much for being with us today. In closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. 
If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.